Welcome to our podcast from the Ark Insider. I'm Karen Allen and I'm speaking to you from Johannesburg. Tara O'Connor, my co-presenter and the managing director of Ark, the Pan-African Risk Consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting, joins us from France. The Ark Insider aims to offer some informal but well-informed Africa-focused conversation to stimulate ideas among those who live, work and breathe African affairs. We'll touch on some of the events that have been in the news, as well as some ongoing topics of interest. Tara, good to speak to you. Very good to speak to you again, Karen. Still in France, various incarnations of lockdown have basically um, peppered these podcasts over the past few months. Um, Just remind us, what what can and can't you do there at the moment? Well, uh, we're still in full lockdown here, so you actually have to register, still have to register with a government website to do anything. And you're allowed to do four or five things that are clearly defined um, and probably the two that I do most regularly is go to the shops and buy my uh, buy food and stuff and go for a walk I go for a long walk which you are uh, you're allowed to exercise but not further than one kilometer from your house but it's been very effective and people are very compliant well let's move on Tara We've got a really, really impressive guest we'll be speaking to later, a Nigerian-American female venture capitalist who's been behind some of the biggest tech deals on the continent. Maya Horgan Famadou has been described by Forbes magazine as the millennial leading Africa's tech revolution. But first, Tara, let's take a look at some of the stories that have been in the news since our last podcast. The Red Cross says the capital of Ethiopia's northern Tigray region is struggling with shortages of food and medical supplies. That's a day after Ethiopia's prime minister declared victory in a military campaign against Tigrayan fighters. Burning anger in Uganda's capital, Kampala, as word spread of the arrest of Bobby Wine, who these protesters want as president. Fast food, slow progress on Brexit trade talks. The takeaway boxes pile up as Britain and the EU try to agree the future of their trading relations. Good afternoon. We're coming on the air right now because President-elect Joseph Biden is about to introduce his national security team. You see him there with the new team. Let's listen in. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Today, I'm pleased to announce nominations and nations and staff for critical foreign policy and national security positions in my administration. Since we last spoke, Tara, um, Ghana's now been in mourning, hasn't it, for the loss of the former president, Jerry Rawlings, the country's longest-serving leader who oversaw Ghana's transition to multi-party politics. Um, His party was the National Democratic Congress Party, wasn't it? And it was instrumental in Ghana's anti-corruption drive. And I suppose his legacy is what we see in Ghana today. I mean, you go there much more often than me, but it is one of the most stable democracies on the continent. He wasn't without controversy, though, was he, Tara? No, absolutely not. I mean, he was a military leader and um, and as such, there were some fairly horrendous um, executions of people uh, believed to be responsible for corruption and so on. I would say that his greatest achievement, even as a military ruler, was to transition to restore civilian democratic rule and, in fact, to delegate the economy to a highly competent finance minister 
and leave behind a solid economic foundation. And that solid economic foundation remains today. Ghana's elections take place like clockwork, um, and it now has a solid transition, tradition, I beg your pardon, of what the French call alternance, where one government successfully hands over to another smoothly and successfully. But then again, for a whole generation, Jerry John Rawlings was really a black consciousness leader who engendered pride uh, in a whole generation. In a sense, he was the Black Lives Matter leader of his day. There is something else about Ghana. You know, Ghana is always the country of firsts. So Ghana was the first to get its, um, uh, to win its uh, independence. It was then the first to really fall to widespread corruption and mismanagement, then to military rule, but then also the very first country in West Africa to take the very tough IMF medicine of the 1980s um, and, and then also make that um, successful political transition. And it's a champion of all the sort of modern economic, uh, modern economic initiatives that are being taken up by the African Union, such as the African continental free trade arrangements and so on. It's interesting, Tara, when um, US President um, Barack Obama made his Africa tour that he quite deliberately didn't go to Kenya first. He went to Ghana to sort of issue a very, very clear message about leadership and about stability, didn't he? Yes, and very wise too. There is a hugely strong, uh, strong link between Ghana also and the US. Um, I noticed that um, that at the Black Lives Matter protests in the Congress, and uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi and the entire. Uh, team were wearing kente cloth, which of course comes from comes from from Ghana. So, the very strong diaspora links, uh, modern diaspora links to to America, and of course, also uh, Ghana encourages uh, encourages people of African American heritage to come back and to rediscover their their roots in West Africa, because of course, again, very tropical at the moment, uh, Ghana was also the heart of the slave trade. No, you're right. Well, let's move on to a place which is rather different, obviously, Nigeria. And every time we talk about Nigeria, invariably we talk about governance. Um, it seems to be coming to a head in Nigeria in the wake of the unrest that was associated with those protests, um, the NSARS protests. Do you remember those were aimed at ending police brutality and the disbanding of that notorious police hit squad? Worst violence since uh, return to civilian rule in Nigeria in 1999. At the time, many commentators wondered if this would really be a turning point, didn't they? Can you bring us up to speed now on that, Tara? You know, it's been a few weeks since the end of those protests. Is there still a momentum? The momentum hasn't really been lost. It's just moved into the international arena. And what's been very interesting is that the UK Parliament, I think, on the 23rd of November, has actually voted to impose sanctions, targeted sanctions, against senior members of Nigeria's political elite, the military, um, and to suspend funding for police reform. You know, the UK Parliament vote was in response to a petition by over 220,000 people, again, many dual national Nigerian Britons, um, to, to push the sanctions issue. 
Uh, and in the UK, if you get over 100,000 uh, signatures on a petition, it, it forces a debate in Parliament. And although the vote went ahead, it's non-binding, but it has still had a very powerful uh, response within the within the presidency, from what I gather. Are those travel bans or are they sanctions to effectively freeze assets? Because the word gets used very broad brush, doesn't it? And I'm just thinking of when it was imposed in, in Kenya among some of the Kenyan leaders. Um, do you know what those sanctions will actually mean for the, for the people that are targeted? So, in fact, I think you're absolutely right. It's targeted sanctions. It's kind of... Uh, it's the targeted sanctions, so visa bans, visa restrictions, seizing of assets, rather than actually blanket sanctions of the sort of 1980s that we would have seen against South Africa, which are no longer considered to be very effective. But these targeted sanctions would have an effect because, of course, there's such a huge closeness between the Nigerian elite and the UK in particular. The Nigerian elite send their children to boarding school in in, uh, in England. Uh, Buhari, the president himself, comes over to the UK for medical treatment on a regular basis. And the Nigeria's elite hold properties all over London and elsewhere. And so the asset freezes, it would be extremely effective. But it's had, you know, the, I think, again, the very worrying thing, considering we've just been talking about military intervention in politics, part of the backlash that this uh, vote in UK Parliament has had has been the political vacuum in the presidency has basically been filled by the military and the security chiefs. And they have kind of assumed control of the entourage around President uh, Mohamedou Buhari. And a bunker mentality has actually taken hold of the presidency. And I think that's a very worrying trend. It's, it's really, as one of my sources said, it's Nigeria is going in the wrong direction. You're listening to The Ark Insider, the Africa-focused podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Well, it's now time to welcome our guest, a hugely impressive young businesswoman who's made it her mission to leverage funds to help grow Africa's tech sector. Maya Horgan Famadou is a Nigerian-American venture capitalist and co-founder of Ingressive. She's credited as being the first woman to have raised a tech fund in Africa to the tune of 10 million US dollars, no less, and has made it her mission to try to link Silicon Valley to the streets and boardrooms of Lagos, among other cities. Maya Horgan Famadou, welcome to the Ark Insider. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Really lovely to speak to you. Uh, I'm speaking to you from South Africa in the midst of a storm, I might add. You're in Los Angeles in the US, and my co-presenter Tara is currently locked down in France. There's globalisation for you, alive and kicking on this podcast. Hi, Karen, and hi, Maya. So great to have you on our podcast. Maya, before we go into details of your business success, please give us a little bit of background, if you would, of where the entrepreneurial seed was actually sown. You were in banking, weren't you? And you came from a very business-minded Nigerian family, but grew up in the US. So I guess fusing those two lives together has really become your brand. Where did it all start? My dad and all his brothers moved to the U.S. for higher education, and they all settled down in Minnesota. Some of them returned home eventually, and that's how I got to watch 
uh, entrepreneurship on two continents with all variables constant, same background, same upbringing, same education, same gender, the only difference where they were building their businesses. But as far as my family specifically, my mom uh, is a war vet. She worked 23 years in the military and was also an artist. And my father is a pastor in Nigeria that has no connection to the business space. So as far as where I started, um, both sides of my family have an acute dedication to the betterment of humanity, and um, but just pursue it in, in radically different ways. My mom through uh, the, the armed forces and my father through um, spirituality and religion. And I think that um, has been a theme, just like how ways in which we can at scale improve the circumstance for a population of people um, has, has really been embedded in the DNA of, of both sides of my family. As far as the business, uh, those, are, those are skills that I've cultivated over time um, to pursue the goal of ensuring all Africans have the resources they need to build wildly scalable businesses. And then that brings us up to the modern day, right up to today. It's your company that actually first took an interest in Paystack, the extraordinary system, you know, a payment system for internet-based businesses, is it? Which has led to the biggest tech investment in Africa worth about 200 million. What was it that actually attracted you and how did you go about finding the, you know, finding your target for investment? Yeah, so Paystack was my was the very first fund investment. So as, as a bit of context, in 2014, I launched an advisory firm. Well, in 2014, I tried to launch a $50 million fund, but I was 23 with about a year of professional experience, <laughs> didn't get so far. And so instead of have, holding the capital directly, I said, um, investors, I will take you to Nigeria and I will show you the viable investment opportunities, and then you can make the decision to deploy capital yourself. And I did that over a few years. We worked with firms both on the venture side and then expanded this to um, blue chip technology companies from the Western world, um, um, assisting them to enter or operate or, or provide solutions in, in Nigeria and greater Africa. We worked with the lights of like GitHub and Figma and Google for developers and Facebook blockchain, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and so that was, that was part one. And then with some of the profits we made from the advisory business, we began investing, or I began investing in technology companies uh, in Nigeria. And then once we actually launched the fund, um, all the money I had raised at the time, uh, we invested in, in Paystack as our very first fund investment. Paystack was the first African business to go through Y Combinator and came out very fine-tuned uh, with very clear product market fit with very strong technology. And then as far, far as the founding team, Ezra and Shola as a duo, not only their technical competence, um, but their in-market expertise. I think it's so important. We, we require that um, there is an indigenous in, uh, founder on, in all of the companies that we invest in because we believe that there is an acute understanding of their target demographic, and then also um, um, the founders to have relevant experience in the area in which they're building businesses, technical experience specifically. And these guys had built solutions in the financial services sector. They had, you know, observed the processes of startups and, and growth companies in that space in Nigeria specifically. They couldn't have been um, better, better background and experience. And so these things coupled with the fact that their total addressable market was massive. This is a real problem that African entrepreneurs face. 
and they needed a pay stack. And the adoption of the technology was just incredible. Can you tell us what it does, actually, just for the non-technically minded of us? Can you just tell us what Paystack does and how you kind of got around the, the banking regulation? Because that's that's a huge issue across the con- continent, just being able to move money around. And then the advent of digital technology has changed that. Yeah. So just generally, Paystack is the Stripe for Africa. For those who don't know Stripe, um, they collect payments with a modern secure payment gateway. So essentially, um, if you are... Uh, trying to buy products online, for example, from say an African business like a Jumia or an African flight or um, uh, air travel platform or something like that. When you actually go online and there's that little square where you put in your credit card information, that is a, a, a typically, and it'll, I mean, it'll say pay stack if it is, but that is, is one um, component of what they do. You put in your credit card information, they plug directly into the, the bank and can um, deduct from that one. And historically, the problem is that um, just African SMEs and African businesses generally can't accept or could not accept digital card payments. And that was the problem that they were solving. And the solutions that existed either were blocking out uh, Naira cardholders or indigenous cardholders, or the quality of the technology was, wasn't so great. And so maybe 50 plus percent of the transactions, so like every other time you tried to put in your credit card information to make a payment, it failed. We recognize that very much as those of us who travel an awful lot across the continent. It happens far too frequently. And then tell us the rest of the story, which was actually attracting Stripe, because that's the other part of the equation, isn't it? It's uh, not only finding the investable local company, but then uh, finding the uh, the sort of major investor that's going to take it right across the continent. Um, I just want to clarify, uh, mm. Shola and Ezra, and their team did this entirely independently. I, I'm I'm taking no credit, credit for, for um, okay. any of the Stripe or or Tencent relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shola through Y Combinator and beyond was able to secure these relationships, um, close the deals. You know, uh, Shola and Ezra themselves um, and leave. Can I stop you, um, Maya? What's Y Combinator? You've made reference to it before. Just just tell us what that is. Um, it's created a new model for funding early stage startups and they admit people to come to Silicon Valley and work intensely for, I believe it's three months and they provide them. And basically you have a finished product and you just need assistance with, with scaling growth, maybe fine tuning the product distribution, et cetera, things like that. And some of their, uh, alumni include Stripe themselves, uh, which is, which is how Shola, I believe got that relationship. Airbnb, uh, DoorDash, Coinbase, Instacart, Dropbox, Twitch, Reddit, a number of billion-dollar technology companies have gone through. Absolutely fascinating. And, 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 and so what, uh, what's next um, in terms of, uh, of your company? What are you looking at next? Yeah, so we're actually launching a significantly larger fund. Uh, we also um, this year launched Ingressive for Good, which is a nonprofit that provides micro scholarships, technical skills development, and talent placement. So basically, we buy laptops and data for African youth who want to learn tech. We pay for computer science scholarships at, at uh, top tier African universities, and uh, we sponsor uh, continual learning. So if somebody wants to take Coursera, 
courses or Code Academy or go for a training somewhere, we pay for that. And then we do, um, we sponsor cohorts of technical training at, at, um, at African organizations that, that teach engineering. Uh, and then we have, we do talent placements. We've just raised another $100,000 for the nonprofit. And that's being run by an incredible team that I'm so proud of this year. Uh, they've made a significant, significant traction and impact. Can I just step back a moment and just look at the big picture? Because tech and tech investment appears to be a very male-dominated field, certainly in the U.S. Is that actually the case across Africa? I'm asking that, Maya, because it seems to be a little bit more of a level playing field here when we think of some of the incredible innovations to emerge from the region. Um, automated savings platforms such as piggybank.ng and We Farm Africa, they're both Nigerian born ideas from female entrepreneurs. Just, just describe that sector. I mean, it, it does seem that we're getting many, many more women that are really making it big in tech from this part of the world. Does it feel that the playing yeah. field is slowly being leveled? Uh, I wouldn't say it even is being leveled in Africa. I would say that um, there are equal educational expectations of men and women. And thus, you know, there are also actively implemented, you know, now even years ago, policies that require, you know, so for example, in Nigeria, 30% of all public companies need to have, or 30% of the boards of all public companies need to be female. In Rwanda, it's 50-50. In Ethiopia, you know, similar, if not more. Um, Liberia is female president, you know, we have just a lot of female leadership in um, public sector uh, or public businesses, as well as actual public sector and government, uh, in government, unlike the Western world, and also specifically in Nigeria, um, the expectation of, you know, Nigerians are the most educated nationality in the US. And, you know, that's, that's in part, the women who have equal expectations to come and get masters and PhDs, et cetera, et cetera. So just the cultivation of talent is there. I would say on ground of every major VC that I know that's African and actively investing, um, at least one partner or executive is female. Yes, um, we are the largest uh, VC you know, to be launched by a black female and, and I'm the youngest and, and whatever. But all of my peer firms have have women that I'm engaging with regularly. I'm not a women-focused fund. We're a strictly for-profit venture capital fund. But it happens to be that 33% of our portfolio companies are female-founded because 50% of our executive team is female. And so when you have people that look like the target of where you're trying to invest, it just happens to be that there's a stronger reach. So um, I would say that part of the reason more, you know, women are being funded in, in, in across African tech sectors and why there's more women building businesses. Um, one, it's it's very cultural, and two, um, because of that um, access and and uh, educational or training expectation and, and inclusivity of all genders, then the target that we're investing in look like us as well. Such an interesting point. In a way, many of the women have been sort of solution-seeking on the ground, whether it's in an urban setting, whether it's in an agricultural setting. Um, so it is very striking what you say and, and certainly very, very encouraging and, and makes me feel very optimistic, certainly you know, based on the young people who are involved who perhaps have, don't have venture capitalists behind them at this stage, but who are growing their, uh, their products growing their ideas and hoping to be able to play there with the, I was going to say the big boys, but the big boys and the big girls uh, before too long. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, um, Africa, you know, our Nigeria, et cetera, et cetera, has historically been such a matriarchal society. Yes, we do have um, 
patriarchy and the misogyny, et cetera, et cetera, and all the, you know, challenges that we're dealing with in equality these days. But historically, African culture is is extremely matriarchal, especially relative to the Western world. And and as as sort of like the the youth population, I'm, I'm noticing across the board from gender to sexual preference to tribalism, like our generation doesn't really care about those things, especially within the tech sector. It's just like get stuff done. And with that, we're even seeing like with this NSARS movement that was that's happened in Nigeria, the leadership, you know, feminist coalition, the 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 center point, the nucleus of this, the organization that raised hundreds of millions of naira, were all women. Apparently you were actually there during the NSARS protests on the Lekki on on the Lekki uh, Peninsula, and I understand also that you know tech was at the heart of that as well, both in in communicating, in crowdfunding to support the protesters. But I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing with us what your uh, experience of it was. And just to interrupt, that's a reminder. That's that. That's the protest against the um, the unit, the police unit in Nigeria, that was eventually disbanded. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily say they were entirely disbanded because, similar to what they've been doing for you know well over a decade, um, they just changed the name of the organization, give them new jackets with a new name, and then mm. basically everyone who was in the former organization then just rejoins the new organization. So. I wouldn't say a lot has has changed. Now there's SWAT as opposed to SARS. So same people, different jacket. But to answer your question, yeah, I live about three streets away from ground zero of the Lecky massacre. And I was very actively participating in the protest, distributing supplies, et cetera, et cetera, trying to, you know, fundraise. And then all of that happened. And then we had to go into emergency mode of distributing medical supplies, you know, pharmaceutical supplies to the hospitals that weren't moving on the streets, et cetera, et cetera. So it really turned into a very serious thing over time. You know, this is probably the first time that there has been such a major um, uh, unleashing of violence by 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 the military, it seems, since the advent of, uh, of democratic government in Nigeria. And I just wonder, from your point of view as a young entrepreneur, I mean, where do you think or hope that this is going to go? Where do I think this is going to go? Mm. Um, I, I think that, you know, every faction of society, what we saw by the NSARS movement is that every faction of society, irrespective of class, irrespective of tribe, irrespective of gender, irrespective of employment organization or relationships or connections or access, everyone, every Nigerian has been negatively affected by this organization and, and the government. And more more gener- generally, the the political leaders that be currently and their incompetence and their extreme ne- nepotism and their like blatant corruption. I I think that you can have like maybe one or two without the third, but <laughs> this is like a a, a a wild triple threat that that everyone entrepreneurs, private sector, public sector alike had to face and has to has to. Uh, has been negatively impacted by professionally and personally. No matter who you are and where you are, these are all the same challenges that we're facing. And consequently, I think 2023 is going to be the year that we all collectively can stand and unite. And I think NSARS really showed something that not only can social media benefit and leverage, which is why now the Nigerian government is trying to pass the anti-social media bill, 
um, seeing and very acutely aware of the power that this unity and, and collectivity of the populace has. But I, I don't think there's any stifling. And, and from being on ground and seeing the, all of the organizations that are that are popping up and all of the different like sort of youth coalitions and um, and and yeah, the the general unity. Um, I don't think that there is that it will be possible in any capacity to stifle and no and I think that um, regardless of how many rice bags they try to you know bribe the the average African voter with I, I don't I don't think that's going to happen again in I think we're at an entirely, in 2023 is going to be a very big uh, a, a a big election do you think absolutely absolutely mm, I think it's going to be uh, we'll see like historic voter turnout to similar to how we just did in the U.S. I think that we will have people coming to office who have not necessarily um, a strong background in politics as is. Uh, we'll see a lot of technocrats and, and meritocratic leadership as in people who are actually trained. Um, I think that there is something very special going to happen very soon. It's fascinating. And the social media, the leveraging effect of social media, as you say, is is really so important you know internationally people had not heard of SARS until just a few months ago and I found it extraordinary how you know this issue forced its way onto the main international news bulletins and obviously not everyone gets their news through that source now but the leveraging effect of social media is absolutely massive absolutely the political movements of the future you know being born here today in a way <laughs> we are running out of time what are you doing in LA at the moment and did you have a nice Thanksgiving? Actually, I'm here visiting friends and family in the U.S. And then today is actually the first day of our of the launch of our of our fund two, and we're we're just launching the raise for our fifty million dollar fund two uh, today. So big things happening um, up next for us in in the new year. I think now uh, brighter horizons are ahead with the with the transition that. I think is happening in the U.S. I don't really know what Trump is doing these days, but um, but um, with the assumption that there will be a peaceful democratic transition in America, um, I look forward and I'm I'm excited about um, what the the Biden administration and seeing some of his initial um, political picks. Oh, another thing to look forward to. I just got Forbes 30 and their 30 VC today, so I'm excited to see the impact that's going to have on our fundraising across the U.S. What does that mean? Forbes has a list that they nominate every year of 30 people who are under 30 years old. And there's a venture capital um, list. And I was just elected to that. I'm looking forward to see what's going to happen from that promotion. Maya Horgan Famadou, really, really best of luck in the future. What an extraordinary amount you've packed into a very young life already. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Maya, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And congratulations on your success so far. And I look forward to watching your star rise and rise. Awesome. Well, you two have a great night ahead. Um, stay safe in the storm and I will talk to you soon. <laughs> talk soon. You've been listening to The Ark Insider with me, Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at Ark produces Ark Briefing, country reports on the region that take a deep dive into the issues every month. You can get more information about a subscription to get these at info at africarisconsulting.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now. <laughs>